0: Much for coming uh, to this really timely and
1: important discussion. Um, my name is Tari Hum, and I'm the chair of Urban Studies. Um, and again, I, I want to welcome you here. Um, before we start um, with introductions of our panelists and my co-moderator, um, I'd like to acknowledge um, that Keeney Queen's campuses, rest on um, the unceded ancestral lands of indigenous peoples, including the Kanarsi, the Tinicot and Rockaway peoples. We acknowledge that academic institutions were founded upon and continue to enact mesions and erasures of indigenous peoples, including those on whose lands Punik these institutions are located. This acknowledgment of the Canarshi, uh, the Tintacoc and Rockaway peoples, their elders both past and present, as well as future generations, demonstrates a commitment to begin the process of working to dismantle the ongoing legacies of settler colonial um, I want to thank the Queen's uh, College Chinese Students Association in particular, Uh, for our panelists, and then leave a couple of minutes at the end for QA from the audience. So, uh, we have with us uh, Aneta Shicharan, um, who has spent more than 25 years breaking down barriers and creating opportunities that we found power and access for marginalized communities. For two decades, Aneta has championed positive change locally and internationally. Her leadership roles include Director for Policy and Advocacy at United Neighborhood Houses, and Executive Director of South Asian Youth Action. Um, a Guyanese immigrant to New York City, Anetta holds a MA in International Political Economy and Development from Fordham University, a BA in Political Science from the Manhattanville College, Executive Management Certificates for Columbia Business School and Harvard Business School. She also serves on the board of the New York and Coalition. So welcome, Anetta. Uh, Richard David uh, previously ran for the New York City Council and for the New York State Assembly, both times coming in a close second. He was elected as a district leader in Uh, The New York State Assembly District 31 for a third term, which he is currently serving. Richard worked in the leadership of multiple city agencies for over a decade under two mayors and was a non-profit lobbyist for the most successful lobby firm in New York. We won't ask you the name of that. (laughs) Most successful lobby firm, but he currently works for an energy company, is an adjunct professor at CUNY, and manages a consulting practice. He is a board member of Queen's, sorry, of Queens Library, Flushing uh, Meadows Corona Park, the Long Island City Partnership, and the Indo-Caribbean Alliance. And Richard lives with his family in South Ozone Park, Queens. we also have We also have Alicia Singh. She uh, who uses she, her pronouns, and she believes that practicing radical love. Candor and care are some of the many ways we can dismantle oppression in the world. Her experience teaching for over a decade taught her that teaching is an act of social justice. Felicia joined the team at the Coalition for Asian American Children and Families as Director of Policy and Government Relations in January. Um, She is also a trainer for New American Leaders an organization that supports first- and second-generation Americans running for office. Prior to joining the Coalition for Asian American Children and Families, Felicia served as the advocacy and campaign manager for Jahaji Sisters, a grassroots organization focused on gender justice in the Indo-Caribbean and South Asian community. Felicia ran in one of the only Republican County of Queens, New York, and was the Democratic nominee for New York City Council in District Thirty-Two, making her the first Indo-Caribbean and Punjabi person to win a Democratic primary uh, for the New York City Council. So, well, um, so as noted, uh, Professor Condon-Wall and I will uh, be moderating this panel, and so we, I'm going to ask the first question. Maybe we can go down the road this way, and then the second questions that will um, another well, um, okay. answer. So, uh what we, did you want to um, kind of... I say, uh, Absolutely. Uh, absolutely.
0: No, I apologize. I, no, that's fine. And uh, this is just the right time. Um...
1: bit more about yourself, for example, where you grew up, what
2: schools you attended, and the types of influences and experiences that led you to your leadership position. Thank you, Queens College and all the organizations that really helped to put this together. Uh, But really big shout out to the GSA. Um, I went to CUNY, and I was a part of a lot of college associations, and the GSA was always the premier. It was a rivalry between St. John's and GSA here. Um, and I'm so happy to be here with the GSA because I knew you guys would win. The, uh, <laughs> the, I, I was born in Guyana. I actually recently, I think of it as relatively recently, uh, moved to the United States. I went to college not far away at, um, Well, that was high school. I went to John Bowne High School on this campus. And I actually came to Queens College for a lot of my classes, both remedial classes and AP classes. Um, I actually wouldn't have finished high school if I didn't come to this campus. Um, I could never do well in math. I don't know about you guys, but um, the, the services you really... <laughs> Maybe it's a gender disparity, because... Uh, the, um, and then, so after high school, I went to John Jay, Hunter, NYU, and then I worked at many government agencies, and I did it. Um, but it was in, it was at Hunter College when I became the head of the West Indian Student Empowerment Organization, and Dr. Madalika talked about how Indo-Caribbean is a relatively new identity that we acclaimed. Um At that time, we would say, Indo-Carib- we would say West Indian, we would, they were different terminologies. Um, and so the West Indian Student Empowerment Club-wise, very much like the GSA, was an organization that worked on campus to build solidarity, events, a lot of access for our students on campus. And it was in that organization where I realized that when I come home at night, and I lived at that time in Richmond Hill in Ozone Park, a lot of the services that I was creating on campus and that we were bringing to the school didn't actually exist in this community that I call home. and. You know, when we talk about this population that we are members of, it's actually the second largest immigrant group, foreign born here in Queens, and it has been for decades, so it's not new information. And it's the fifth largest group anywhere in New York City. It's particularly remarkable because the country that we're from actually has about 750,000 people in total. And so there are more, probably more people here intergenerationally than even in the country itself. And for a lot of New Yorkers, this is confusing, because we look Indian and we identify as Indian, but we're not actually from India. And for many of us, we are the first South Asians we've ever known in New York. And the South Asians that we're meeting for the first time after hundreds of years of leaving the subcontinent here in New York, very often don't look like us, don't speak like us, they don't identify many of the things that we participate in. And so this reconnection is a strange one, and this invention of an Indo-Caribbean term is something that I take a lot of pride in, in building, and that's now really gained a lot of political momentum. And it really brings a lot of Trinidadian, Surinamese, Guyanese folks under an umbrella with an objective of seeking and obtaining political power. And so my goal in wanting to mobilize my community politically is so that we can bring resources and services, and I have a feeling my colleagues on the panel are going to say similar things, um, but it, it really is a shared fight that we, I think, are all a part of. Just so I can get a sense of the folks in the room, how many people identify as Indo-Caribbean? And how many of those of you who identify as Indo-Caribbean were also born in the United States? Okay. Good, just good for, good for us to know. Um, and in, in terms of my own bio, my, my parents actually allowed my brothers and I to do whatever we wanted to do. I know there's a stereotype that Indo-Caribbean parents want, our, want their kids to become lawyers and doctors. Uh, my parents, of course, wanted that too, but the reality is they wanted us to do anything that we wanted to do, just do it really well and be the best at it. And so uh, I really love that I'm fulfilling their uh, dreams for us so the question
1: is just what God tells us. Yeah,
0: yeah.
3: well first of all let me say um, this is amazing I want to thank the leadership of the Guyani Student Association and all of you who participate in that association um, I'm just reflecting sitting here that this would not have been possible when I was broken um, and I think we just Take a moment to celebrate that, Um, and in many respects, um, you all are very lucky. But I also recognize that you all face so much that I, as a youth in this city. So a a bit about me. um, Something that Richard said also truly resonates with me. I got my start in college organizing. and so, you know, this is a big takeaway. It starts here, this is your first opportunity. Um, I went to Manhattanville College, um, a small, very white, um, liberal arts college in Westchester. I just, it was like, literally, I somehow accidentally got there. Um, <clears throat> uh, it ended up being such a great thing for me. But when I got there, you know, I was um, a relatively recent Guyanese immigrant. I had. You know, I was very working very hard on my American accent. Um, but back in the Bronx, where I was growing up in my teenage years, I was sort of lost, and I was protected, or you know, um, really kept um, close to home and to my community. Um, but going out to college and being in this like truly foreign environment, it was a really the first time. I like experienced America and I experienced racism. Um, and it was racism, it was genderism, it was everything, you name it, right? And, um, but it occurred to me that there was no women's um, organization on campus. And this used to be a college campus that was all women like a decade previously. Um, and so I founded the first women's organization on campus. And it was kind of a crazy, radical move for a kid with a funny accent from the Bronx um, to do this. But it really gave me such, um, I think, the biggest takeaway was true belief in myself that I can do something. Um, And I have to say, that was the first sort of step towards me being where I am today. it truly was, I mean, everything I did from there built on that that first step. Um, so a little bit about how I got here. So I mean, I think my formative years in Guyana also made a big difference. I mean, why was I motivated to do something about gender? Issues on this all-white campus where I was pretty much invisible. Um, but I grew up at a time in Guyana uh, under great political strife. Um, as a child, I lived the reality of the black and Indian fight. Uh, my father was in politics, um, and I remember at the time like being told at home that we, you know, he supported Burnham, uh, or he was part of the, P- the PPP because he needed to be, I'm sorry, the PNC, um, which was the party of power, but the Indian dominant party was the PPP, um, and so, as a, as a child, I had to carry this burden of my father being part of the group that is viewed as the traitor to the Indians. Um, but really, I think that truly politicized me, and to see the ways in which um, power and and race and the complexity of it all, and how um, it's really difficult to figure out what the truth is, um, and and so I think figuring out the truth and seeking the truth has been very much the question that has guided me. And
4: it's so nice to hear parts of your full of stories. Like I know your bios, but it's always nice to hear new information. So thank you. Uh, I'm Felicia. I grew up in an interfaith and intercultural home. A little bit different um, because my father is Punjabi and my mom is from Guyana. She's Guyanese. And I also grew up in an interfaith home where my mom is Muslim and my dad is sick. And so I grew up in this home that was like, okay, how can we expose our children to both religions, both cultures, and also ensure that they can make decisions on their own when they get older to decide who they wanna be, but also be proud of who they are. And that that was a struggle in the making because my dad is a taxi driver. I would remember him driving me to elementary school. I went to PS63 in Ozone Park. Big got to Queens Falls. Um, and he would drive me to school and I'd say, please stop a block away and I will walk the rest of the way because I didn't, I felt shame in the fact that he was a taxi driver. And it wasn't until high school that I started to realize like, oh my goodness, my parents worked deeply, uh, we've lived a deeply working class life. We are deeply working class. There. My dad is still a taxi driver, my mom is still a school bus matron. They are 63 and 67 years old, and they have the inability currently to retire because we are so deeply working class. And that is what has moved me politically, my personal story, our personal struggles, um, living in Ozone Park, an area that's deeply Republican living in a community that's representative by folks who are moderate and might not see the the needs of our most working class communities, Um, and and not realizing that also until my adulthood, like, why politics is everything that we are. Everything is political. And accepting that, internalizing it, and be like, okay, so what am I going to do about it? Um, and I started to become more politically active, um, and just active in the arts world too in high school, and how do we use art to transform the way we view the world and want to see the world. Um, and college, going to, going from like Thomas Edson High School, which is predominantly like Indo-Caribbean and, and Black and, and Latinx, to a predominantly white institution like Adelphi University. Um, and that was a struggle. That was a huge cultural shift for me because I was like, oh, I think I went to the wrong school. Like, I think I chose the wrong place because no one here looks like me. We didn't have a guy named Student Association there. We, 10 years later, when I took my students on a college visit, we went during a holy celebration and it was so liberating to see that on campus. Like, people throwing fogo out with each other and like, and colors and, and all different races and religions participating in that because that was not a reality when I was there back in 2007 to 2011. So all of these experiences of being working class, of being interfaith and intercultural is what politicized me to do.
0: Your work and organization, and how your work contributes to and impacts the Indo-Caribbean community and broader New York City Asian American community. And um, also, as a community leader, what do you think
3: are the most urgent priority issues for Indo-Caribbean New York? So, um, so I serve as the executive director of Chaya Community Development Corporation. I think my my bio stated I was in Chaya, but I. Grand Saya for eight years, um, and I've, I've been at Chaya uh, for the last seven years. Um, I, I have to say that when I left Saya, I really felt like, oh, okay, um, this is—we are—we are standing again, uh, facing the ocean and telling the truth tide to turn back um, in the work that we're doing because. the the forces against us are so great. And so I knew that I wanted to do broader, systemic change work. And that's why I went to uh, United Nations Houses um, and let their policy work. Um, But what's always driven me is a deep connection to to my community, to my people. And, I was drawn to come back to community work because I felt that there is this tension um, between organizing and advocacy and direct service. And um, there, there, there doesn't need to be a tension, but I think that there are schools of thought where there are folks who think who prefer who believe that that organizing and advocacy is the root and the most effective way to create change. Um, and then there are those who really respond to the current needs. I believe both are important, and this is why, and this is the work I've been doing at Chaya for the last seven years, is really building out this sort of framework of coupling, meeting the needs today of folks, whether it's housing needs. Um, So Chaya is primarily a housing organization, but um, over the last uh, few years, I built out an economic justice portfolio, looking at issues such as small businesses and stabilization of small businesses, um, personal finances. Um, and, you know, meeting immediate needs like um, encouraging and supporting folks to file their taxes. We have one of the lowest participation rates in the city. Um, but things like that, the very basics, the nuts and bolts of what it takes to make life work today because we all know that our needs cannot wait for systemic change and bigger policy reforms. Um, however, the kinds of organizations that we all are connected to and the work we do is small compared to the scale of the need. Um, and however, I think this kind of intimacy of the work and really getting a very nuanced understanding of the needs of the community is precious. Precious information that I think it's, it's, um, it's critical, it is required, it is super important that we use that in, those insights to inform policy change. Um, and and that, that is the work that I'm committed to doing and that's the work that I'm proud of. Um, that my organization Chaya is doing on many, many fronts.